Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week it's time to take stock and test the pulse of the literary horror corpus. To do that, I'm joined, once again, by two luminaries and linchpins of the horror community. Sadie Hartman, aka Mother Horror, and Emily Hughes of Torn Nightfire. We'll be looking back over the second half of 2021, talking about the books we've loved, the trends we've spotted, the issues that need raising, and looking forward to the new year ahead. It's a sort of horror town hall, a parliament of panic, a cabinet of curiosity and carnage. Sorry, I went down a kind of alliterative rabbit hole there. That does happen. A lot of this is just us saying how good Stephen Graham Jones really is. But aside from that unifying principle, we have very different tastes, and our respective lists should have something for everyone. There's a lot to listen to here, nearly two hours worth, so I think it's best I keep this intro short and just say, come on, one more time in this hellscape of a year. Let's talk scared. So, Sadie, Emily, say hello to your adoring public. <laughs> hello, adoring horror fans. Well, hello. It's so nice to be back. They are adoring. That People love this shit. Like, honestly, when I posted that we're doing it again, everyone got very excited, which they don't get that excited <laughs> when I do things on my own. So I am taking a bit of umbrage. <laughs> it's like the fact that whenever I post a photo of my dog, it gets way more social media engagement than anything I do myself. So the, the dog now wants royalties. Anyway. <laughs> I digress. For the sake of inclusivity, can you tell everyone listening, in case they don't know, who you are and what you do in the world of horror? Yes, Emily, go. <laughs> All right. Uh, my name is Emily Hughes. I am the site editor for TorNightFire.com, which is a website dedicated to all things horror, books, movies. Uh, we even have a music column going now um, from the great Megan Ball. And uh, we talk about, we we run essays, we run interviews, we run features we run a big new release list every year that i know uh neil is a big fan of mm -hmm. and i write an occasional newsletter and i am an occasional bookseller in non non-pandemic times and i just really really love scary shit um my name is sadie hartman um i write reviews for cemetery dance and scream horror magazine um i've also just a freelance writer for different platforms like Grim Dark Magazine, Lit Reactor. I do write for Tor Nightfire. Um, I recently just started writing for Mystery and Science Magazine and the lineup weekly. I'm also the co-owner and founder of Nightworms, which is a monthly horror subscription package that we deliver to our fans. And I am an active member at the Horror Writers Association. Um, so yeah, that's me. Oh, as am I. <laughs> <laughs> so in short you're both far more qualified to have this conversation than i am um so thank you for, for being here yeah i was thinking you know if we're going to continue to call this thing the state of the horror nation i think we should stick with the political metaphor and refer to ourselves as the cabinet <laughs> <laughs> i i i second that yeah that's my new thing right so that's the meet and greet done 
And at, what, at some point, we will get into picking our favourite books of the year, which is the real thing that people listen to this for. But, but but before that, let's indulge ourselves by reflecting on the last six months in horror generally. I think we can all agree it's been a, a vintage summer and autumn, fall, whatever you want to call it. You guys have been doing this longer than me. You've been involved in the horror community longer and more in depth. So tell me, is it just that I'm reading more current stuff? Or is the horror scene actually getting better and stronger and more varied than it has been in decades? I think it is absolutely more varied and stronger and better than it has been in decades. I think that the the continuing success and growth of the genre has led publishers who might not necessarily, you know, usually take a risk on something that would be marketed as horror to go, oh, no, this is something we can do. This is something that we can sell and that people want to buy and read. And that just leads to a much broader field and uh, like a much greater diversity of voices and stories. And it's a wonderful thing to witness. Yeah. And I, Neil, also, I think both things um, are working in tandem because, mm-hmm. you know, when I first started reading horror, I was just picking things off my mom's shelf and she really was just reading mainstream releases. Um, you know, your Peter Straubs and your Stephen King and your Anne Rice um, traditionally published uh, books that were extremely popular. And that was really just kind of what I had access to. And then as soon as I got online and, you know, started becoming more immersed in the community surrounding horror fiction and finding all the small presses and boutique presses and indie fiction. And it's like, there's just so the volume of talented horror writers and books that are just at our fingertips is like, it's massively overwhelming <laughs> what we have access <laughs> to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, more original and more open to new ideas than it's been a long time, I think. Because, you know, you always had Stephen King trying batshit ideas, but a lot of other kind of pulpy writers would, would often churn out the same derivative plots, whereas now you've got, you know, I always think Stephen Graham Jones encapsulates where horror is going. You know, Haley Piper as well. You know, people like that. I think they encapsulate the the, the trajectory, the full full momentum of horror. Um, and they're new stories. They're they're new lore. They are new angles. And I think that's that's great to see. Very much agreed. And and Stephen Graham Jones really is the author I recommend to people who are are sort of horror curious but haven't really known where to start beyond Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Him and Paul Tremblay. You know, just it's it's a perfect balance of phenomenal prose and really gripping, scary stories. Yeah, he's going to come up again in the conversation. Don't worry, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> so, does anyone have anything they'd like to say about the current landscape before we get into the books? Any trends or issues or noteworthy things? Anything at all that you want to kind of get off your chest? I suppose. Um. Yeah, I I have recently decided, I, I don't know if it was maybe because Goodreads like rolled out this like beta platform um, that they are kind of trying to get us to be on board with, or it's because Amazon has been rejecting my reviews right and left, but those are the two platforms left that require a star rating. And everywhere else, I can just kind of 
write my review and let my words stand for how I felt about the, the particular book that I'm talking about. Um, and I just kind of decided I'm not going to do that in 2022. I'm definitely going to star rate things with like a five star if if it's a book that I feel like is of particular note. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these nuances between a four, a three and a two or whatever is just like really um, dismissive and kind of destructive to the landscape of reviewing when mm-hmm. people just get hung up on half stars and full stars and the difference between a four and a three, like it's just really unnecessary and causes a lot of um, confusion. And I just think people for a community of people who read, I think people should read the review. <laughs> that's that's, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I, I really agree. And, you know, it's something that I haven't, I hadn't given much thought to in, in an active way before, you know, the last few months, but, you know, having, having been someone who, uses Goodreads for years now, I always felt very limited by the star rating system. Because, okay, what is the difference between a three and a four or a four and a five, right? You know, it's, 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 plus, you know, authors who come from, you know, marginalized communities have, you know, a much harder time with things like review bombing on Goodreads, Mm. um, which is just sort of a, you know, a way to game the star system against, you know, someone you don't like for whatever reason. And there's really no, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of no upside to it at this point. You know, I I think Sadie, your point about, you know, just, just if if you're going to be a reader, just read is really, really a good one. Even a, even a letter grade system would be better than the star system. And even that's too reductive, you know? Well, Mm -hmm. my thing with it is that I, I read so few books that I truly would give five stars because for a start, it opens up what you view as a five-star book. I mean, I reckon there are probably 30 books I've read in my life that I would give five stars, meaning they are as good as they could be, you know. But that doesn't mean then that a four or a three-star is damning with faint praise. It just means it's not quite in the absolute upper echelon of, of books that I've loved beyond distraction, you know. I, I picked up a sponsor for this show on a sort of short-term contract, uh, which is a a UK-based app called Novelic that um, basically set itself up to dispense with the star system and just recommend books based on taste. And I think it's a much nicer way to do things, you know, just like, I like this, you might like it too. Mm-hmm. Down with stars. Yeah. <laughs> it, it also, just really briefly, I think it also just kind of matches my reviewing philosophy, which has kind of evolved over the last couple of years too, which is, Um, more just about highlighting books for the right audience. So I don't really even feel like my job is to dissuade or convince anyone to pick up a book. Mm -hmm. More just like, here's how my reading experience went. And if that feels like something you want to experience for yourself, like definitely try this. Or here's how I felt and it really made me feel uncomfortable. This might make you feel uncomfortable. It's more of like a dialogue that you're having with other readers rather than, you know, just this like stamp of approval that I don't feel comfortable with at all. Oh, completely. I, I think it just ties all back into the whole, the, the social media, bite-sized, digestible, granular nature of information these days people want to be able to go okay five stars good book one star terrible book and and not be part of the conversation yeah it's the it's the death of nuance yeah 
completely. As with so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've agreed to get rid of star systems. Well, that, that revolution can start here. We can take them good reads. Um, what else? So let's talk about positive things. What about trends? What typified or stood out for you in, in the last six months? Um, I'm going to say just like um, the return of like the anthology. I remember a couple of years ago, um, somebody had started a big thread about like if anthologies were really um, conducive to making money, like are they profitable? And there was just a lot of publishers weighing in on that being like, yeah, the anthology, blah, blah, blah. But I do think that anthologies are amazing and I'll never stop recommending them and talking about them. They're my favorite way to find new talent. Um, and Ellen Datlow was absolutely slaying it this year and last year. Um, so I just think a return to short fiction, um, you know, being showcased in anthologies, but also just as standalone as free, you know, reading material online, uh, but also novellas. Um, being a viable resource for publishers to be interested in actually publishing via hardcover like Tor Nightfire did for uh, Nothing But Black and Teeth or, you know, Flowers of the Sea by Zinni Rocklin, like Night of the Mannequins, like, you know, you name it, novellas are definitely being purchased as much as a novel. Yeah, the resurgence of the novella is thrilling because you know, not every story needs to be novel length. And in fact, a lot of them shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, it's about it's about sort of, I, I'm a big fan of, of concise storytelling. You know, I'm, I'm generally of the opinion that really very few books need to be longer than 400 pages. Mm. Very, very few. Like occasionally you get one and you're like, yeah, no, that was worth it. Like Chuck Wendig, Book of Accidents, right? You know, Chuck writes right. doorstoppers and they're earned, but like not everybody, you know, not every story needs that much real estate. And I always admire the restraint in the novella form. I think it takes it takes a really deft hand to tell a full story in, you know, 100 pages, give or take. Mm, yeah, I agree. I had Cass Core and Catherine Valente on the show to talk about their respective novellas. Uh, nothing but black and teeth and company with apples and i think company with apples was the perfect novella it was a clean idea uh delivered in like a razor sharp way with with nothing else required nothing but black and teeth was a fantastic novella but i wanted that to be a 400 page novel so badly because i i, mm -hmm. I wanted to just know everything about this this mansion in Japan and the ghosts and, and the horrible things that have happened there. So that's no criticism of, of cast. I mean, their, their, their book is, is great, but I'd have been delighted if they'd gone away and rewritten that as some epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, leave them wanting more is a really good ethos to have as a writer. You know, you, you, I think you want people to, to walk away from, a shorter, you know, form and go, oh, I could have read that forever. Hmm. I do love that feeling. I mean, I also see your point, Neil, because I did write something similar in my review of, of Black and Teeth, just that the horror moments, I, I really longed for 
more of that because it did seem centered around relational drama, but gosh darn it, that relational drama was so good. Um, <laughs> so I was really invested in that, but yeah, but I could have definitely want, you know, I definitely wanted more from mm. the, from the location for sure. Yeah. The flip side of that, of the, cause you're, Undoubtedly, the novella is coming back into its own. I mean, Eric LaRocca's Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke is that that will be up there in my favourite and most memorable reads. It will be up there. I thought it was brilliant. But the flip side of it, and this is my kind of trend for the year, is that I think we've had a return to big, epic, kind of door stopping horror. And I'm just as here for that as, as you are for the shorter stuff. So I, I just, literally, as we're speaking, my episode with Josh Malaman has just gone live, where he talks about Ghoul and the Cape, this 700-page epic. I mean, that book weighs over four pounds. Reading it is literally a workout for the arms, you know? <laughs> I, how I didn't drop it in the bath, I don't know. Um, but it's this epic journey, and obviously Chuck Wendig's Book of Accidents, to some extent, you could say My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones has an epic feel. You know, and mm -hmm. it feels like that, how would I put it? That kind of big storytelling seems to have come back. And I, I absolutely love that. But what I'm fascinated by, and I, I've been kind of musing on putting together an article on this for some, somewhere, I don't know, I'll try and find a home for it. Ahem. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first, listeners. Yeah. I mean, we, um, so we had, you know, 20 years of meta horror. We had, you know, two decades easily of kind of self-aggrandizing, self-reflective, game-playing, ludic, tricksy horror that was sometimes often too smart for its own good. They, sh they should have stopped with House of Leaves, basically. Um, <laughs> but, we had, you know, we had all of that. It probably began with Scream and went all the way through. And yeah. as, as a consequence of that, unavoidably... I feel horror stopped having an emotional impact. It became cerebral rather than emotional. And and that I don't like, you know. I'm a I'm an old romantic at heart. And what I think what I love, and again, Stephen Graham Jones, my boy, the person who keeps seems to epitomize everything I'm talking about, you know, you take you take My Heart as a Chainsaw, and that is a book that is at the same time both incredibly meta and incredibly earnest and sincere. And it blends that razor-sharp, get-in-and-get-out, fast-paced storytelling with the more languid Stephen King-style um, saga, you know. And I feel like we are now in a place where horror has found an equilibrium between earnestness and tricksiness, and I'm delighted about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really compelling point because the, you know, I, and I think it, it's kind of a a function of this broader landscape of horror storytelling that we're in right now. Because when you get this sort of stagnant group of storytellers, you know, who have just been kind of writing the same sort of story over and over and over, it becomes a little stale. And that's, I think what, you know, w what Scream kind of and, and books, it, books, books like Scream and movies like Scream sort of emerged as a reaction to, you know, like, okay, we've all been there, done that. We know, you know, we're, the slasher is, you know, an old, old joke by now, right? You know, we always, you know, the, the kids who have sex are the ones who get killed first. It's an old, it's a punchline by now, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, 
we have all this room for people with different perspectives to tell stories that they need to tell, that they want to tell. And all of a sudden you get this sort of revitalization of the, you know, what you're talking about with the emotional connection to the genre. You know, it's not sort of smirky and like, oh, we're too cool for this, but we're, you know, trying to cash in on it anyway. It's it's very vital and present. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, a, a greater diversity of, you know, voices when it comes to authors. And part of it's just more people telling more stories means more points of view. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, completely. It does bring me, though, to a complaint I have about the current horror scene. Quite trivial, this. But I wonder what you think <laughs> about it. So obviously, goes without question, social horror. It's a stupid term because all horror is social, as I said to Ellen Datlow. And she agreed, so therefore that's the uh, the final the final statement. If, if Ellen agrees, <laughs> that's, that's how it works. You know, all horror is social. But you get what I'm getting at, social horror. Um, something like James Han Matson's Reprieve. It's wonderful that we've got stories that are, as you say, widening the net, giving different perspectives, addressing different things. Unquestionably great. Do we have to keep saying everything is the new get out? Oh, God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, no, please start, because it's, it's pissing me right off. Everything is this year's Get Out, the book version of Get Out. It's like, can people please have their own story? Jordan Peele did a great thing, but not everything is what he did. Look, I have worked in in traditional Big Five publishing for a long time, and comps are a double-edged sword, right? You know, the, the, the sort of purpose of a comp within a publishing house is to give the sales team an idea of how to position a book when they're going to sell it to buyers, you know, okay. So, you know, because the sales team can't read everything, buyers can't read everything. If you can give them an elevator pitch, you know, this is the last house on needless street meets uh, the book of accidents. Now I want to read that book. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but, um, you know, then they go, okay, I know what language to use. I, you know, I, I've worked in sales at a publisher. I, I understand how little time you have with a buyer on each individual title, and you really have to make your words count. But then it sort of gets translated. These comps get sort of translated into this somewhat lazy shorthand. Uh, And sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's, you know, I think I once described the library at Mount Char as, you know, if you dumped Joe Hill and Lev Grossman into Neil Gaiman's skull and shook it out and poured it through a martini strainer, you know, like comparison is useful. You know, we, we as a species need to know, you know, what is, what else is this like? What is it not like? But when that becomes, when you use a phrase like this is the new get out as shorthand for everything, it becomes sort of cheapening and it dilutes it to the point of meaninglessness, right? Like, okay, well, what, what about it is like get out? You know, I really loved reprieve. I thought it was a great novel, I don't think it was really a horror novel. I think it was an interesting and layered and emotionally nuanced portrait of a small community. 
but I don't really think that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I mean, calling everything, you know, the new get out or, you know, in, in a couple years, there'll be something else, right? It won't be get out. It'll be something that we haven't even seen or read yet. I just want to play the devil's advocate a little bit because I think a lot of times um, we forget certain audiences, uh, especially like in book reviews. Oftentimes I feel like we point our reviews toward people who are either familiar with horror or are in the horror industry as much as we are. And, and the assumption is kind of like, Oh, this is a tired phrase. Like let's not use it anymore or let's get another standard or, you know, like we've heard this one a billion times, but honestly, just like having been on TikTok a lot lately, there's a really, really young crowd um, on TikTok and they're barely scratching the surface of reads that are probably like, you know, 20 years old and just rediscovering them for themselves and getting all excited about it. I mean, to the point where TikTok is influencing what's being sold in bookstores. They have, you know, a whole TikTok table at Barnes and Noble because those books are just flying off the shelves because they're just now discovering, you know, some book that we've all read. Um, and when we cross-reference movies that they're, that audience, that target audience is very familiar with, like Get Out, they're grabby for it. And I think that they're still recognizing Get Out as something that is an important messaging that they probably gravitate toward and are still excited about. So, I mean, I I feel like we just need to understand all the different audiences when, like, because I am personally, like, I felt seen as soon as you said that because I, I do read a lot likes all the time in my reviews. And when I was talking about When the Reckoning Comes, I said, you know, it does remind me of Get Out. And I also compared it to like Beloved and Ring Shout um, because I think read likes are really important and they do that in libraries and stuff too when readers come up to them and say, I want something like blah, 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 you know? Oh, I, com- I completely agree with you. Completely agree with you. I mean, I get the marketing angle. I understand the practicalities and I, I'm quite open to a comparison myself. Going back to Reprieve, I mean, I, I said that book was as if Jonathan Franzen had novelized the saw movie um (laughs) (laughs) um but my 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 issue is quite specifically with get out not with not with reader likes or comparison because it's the fact that i i worry that what you've got there is a a committee full of white people going oh we've got this thing now that we can use to sell books to minority groups and I just worry that it, it, it runs the risk of really uh, condensing what is supposed to be a broadening of experience into just one more channel of singular experience. I, I think you're totally right. And and Sadie, you make a really good point that, you know, I, I, I appreciate that perspective because I do feel like sometimes I get too sort of cynical about having been in publishing for so long. <laughs> Um, and I need to sort of be reminded that, right, okay, there is actually a, a world outside of this weird little industry. Um, but Neil, I think that's a really good point about Get Out specifically. It's like, you know, an all white marketing and publicity board going, ah, we know one piece of black pop culture. That's all we need. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, that, that, that was supposed to be it's a little rant on my part. But it led to quite a fruitful discussion. So, yeah, thanks for going with me. Right, 
let's get on to the bit everyone loves because this bit always sprawls and we end up talking for hours and we've already been doing like half an hour. So so let's go. Let's let's talk about the books that we've loved from the second half of 2021. This is where we get to pad out everyone's TBR list. <laughs> we'll go with the same format as last time. So we'll take it in turns to go through our respective picks with some brief synopsis and the reasons that it stood out for you. And there's, I haven't ranked these against each other. There's no hierarchy within this for me at all. So who, who wants to start with their, their first pick of, of the, the best horror book of the last six months? Um, I will with Stephen Graham Jones since we've talked about him so much. We might Great. as well yeah. get, the, get, the, <laughs> get the ball rolling with Stephen Graham Jones. Um, so my pick, yeah, obviously it was My Heart is a Chainsaw. And I really don't feel any kind of trepidation in just declaring that he has quickly and easily become my favorite author um, as of late. He's just been blowing me away ever since I started reading him. In fact, I was just recommending a short story of his from a collection called The New Black. It was an anthology um, called Father, Son, Holy Rabbit that stays in my brain. Like I think about it all the time, not like daily, but I think about it all the time. And his voice and the way that he reads like is also just a part of who I am as a reader now. Like he has definitely evolved things in me to where I just like desire the way that he tells a story. Mm -hmm. And his voice is totally unique to him. I could jump into one of his stories and know immediately that he was telling it. Um, He has very unexpected twists and turns. Um, He has like thrilling horror moments. But he also just has these underlying messages of real issues that people face, like child abuse and alcoholism, suicide, um, gentrification, classism, racism, you you name it. And he utterly devastates me. I mean, the kind where I'm reading in bed and tears are going back on the sides of my head into my hairline and like (laughs) making it difficult for me to like even deal with life. just crushes me, which is why I said like horror with heart has become, you know, the gold standard for me. And my heart is a chainsaw is kind of this fish out of water story about a girl named Jade Daniels. Um, She navigates through her life with like this running narrative of slasher movies that just kind of direct and guide her and kind of act as like a cushion in her life. Um, She's like a social outcast. She's troubled. She has a not great home life from a broken family. Um, And she just kind of discovers that this mystery in her town. And she thinks that there's a serial killer on the loose, a slasher of her own, where she's like the final girl. And then Stephen Graham Jones completely flipped us all out when he announced that this was going to be a trilogy. I knew it was going to be a sequel. I had no idea it was going to be a trilogy. And now I'm just, I'm like the happiest person in the whole world. (laughs) Absolutely. He's just, I think I, when I first read uh, The Only Good Indians, I described it as, to pretty much everyone who would listen, I described his storytelling story, uh, his storytelling style as you're sitting on a bar stool in like the middle of nowhere at like a no-name bar nursing a whiskey and there's this guy three bar stools down 
who's just telling you a story. And it just draws you in and draws like there's this real conversational aspect to it that that nobody else really comes close to. And you're you're absolutely right, Sadie, that you could drop me into a Stephen Graham Jones story. And within two sentences, I'd be like, oh, it's Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also really quickly, uh, I want to say that there's a short story that Laird Barron wrote. Um, where he features Stephen Graham Jones as, <laughs> like, I just don't even want to spoil it for you, but Stephen Graham Jones is in the story and he talks in the story and Laird Barron like completely nails the way that he talks. And it's called Frontier Death Song and you can find it for free on Nightmare Magazine. Um, and if you DM me and you hear this and you want the the immediate link, just DM me on social media and I'll give it to you. John Langan also did that. John Langan also has a short story about Stephen Graham It's amazing. Yeah, it's called Muse, isn't it? It's excellent. It's a dark little gem. It's so good. Right. So this is where I'm not going to be devil's advocate because I agree with you, but I have a different slant on My Heart is a Chainsaw. I read Indians and I liked it and I admired it a great deal, but I wasn't particularly moved by it. And then I came to My Heart is a Chainsaw. And I said this to Stephen, so it's, it's not, you know, he, he, he gets this. For the first 200 pages of that book, I was rolling my eyes, gritting my teeth. I found it quite aggravating because I thought it was, I was thinking, what is this doing that Scream didn't do? You know, and then in the second half, it just devastated me. Absolutely tore my heart out. And I don't get how he did that. I don't get how he turned... And we flip the coin in such a way without rupturing the story because it is still just the same. It's a, a cohesive story, but it, it works so differently in the back half to the first half. And that last chapter with the bear is just one of the most moving things I've read in a long time. He's so good at doing that. You know, we're a society at this point where we've come to expect twists in pop culture, right? Like this is the, the long shadow of the sixth, sixth sense. Mm-hmm. And he does it so deftly and without making a big show of it, but it's still just like, technically you, you, you get past it and you're like, wait, how did you do that? I'm angry at how good you are at this. He's yeah. Brilliant. I just can't wait to see what he does next. He's one of those authors. I can't wait to see, what Elsie does. Going to be honest with you, not thrilled it's a trilogy. Interesting. Okay. Obviously, it's going to prove me wrong, but I don't get where that story goes without almost becoming like a, a, a James Bond thing where it's like, oh, okay, and now we're in another mystery. Now we're in like another thing that can be read one or two ways, more tropes to play with. It feels like the circle closed perfectly and Jade would get the ending and the future she deserved. And... Yeah, not thrilled by that, but obviously, if the benefit of the doubt is due to anybody, it's due to him. Yeah, I to- I was going to say, I totally get that. I-, I am also generally a skeptic about series, uh, but I also, when I heard that it was going to have a sequel, you know, and then it was going to be a trilogy, I was like, where is he going to 
go with it. I really don't know where he's going to go with this. And that really excites me actually mm-hmm. with an author yeah. that talented yeah. because I'm like, I, he knows something that I don't <laughs> yeah. and I yeah. can't wait to find out what it is. Yeah, literally. Like that's exactly what I'm thinking too. Like I don't care. And he could release a book that says my shopping list and I would be like, hell yes. I want to read that. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> the thing that reassures me is that I don't think Stephen is the kind of person who would ever write a book just because, just to make more money because one was successful. I don't think he'd ever yeah, do yeah. that. So I, I feel yeah. like he must have a story here rather than just a check from the publisher. Do you know what I mean? Because there are some authors where oh, you yeah. think, oh, yeah. okay, they've they've broken through here and they're just going to coin it. And I just cannot see Stephen doing that at all. His heart's in it too much. I have a coworker who worked with Stephen on mongrels. And I said to her at one point, I said, what's, what's the, what's the deal? Okay. He's talented. He's charming. He's so kind. He's very handsome. Like what's the catch? Is he secretly just a shithead? She was like, no man, he's really just the nicest guy alive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, fine. I'm glad that I'm glad that we have that in this community. Yeah. Anyway, on to uh to my pick. I gotta start with Revelator by Daryl Gregory, which is this weird, weird Southern Gothic novel. Uh came out in August. One of the best things I've read in recent memory. I'd read a couple of his books. I'd read Spoonbenders when it came out, which was more on the sort of like, you know, fantasy family drama side of things. And I'd read, um, I'm totally glitching on the name. It was a, it was a short, it's a sort of a novella he wrote years ago. Is it everything will be, is it, we will be completely fine or something like that? Yes, we are all completely fine. Thank you. Um, and I, so he was on my radar, but this really felt like a leveling up for him. It is transcendently beautiful prose, which is, I know that's not, you know, that sort of the, the prose quality is not necessarily as important to everyone as it is to me. It's a big thing for me. I could read him, I could read this book specifically for hundreds and thousands of pages. It was so beautifully written. It's the story of a backwoods. Tennessee family in the Smoky Mountains during Prohibition. And it's th- this family has basically a private god who lives under the mountain. And they, the women in the family are sort of trained to commune with this god and sort of receive his messages. Um, and he's known within the family as the ghost daddy. And the men in the family, you know, who are sort of, uh, you know, put out that they are uh, not directly in contact with the God start trying to shape the narrative, like write the, the religious texts of this God uh, without the women's involvement. And so it becomes this sort of like, you know, commentary on, on gender and religion as a whole, but it's also just so fucking creepy. Hmm. Um, and it splits between two timelines. It's the main character as a girl sort of learning to commune with the god and as an adult going back to her family's homestead and find when her grandmother dies and finding a strange little girl there that who nobody can really account for and who behaves strangely. 
And it's a really fast, really compelling read. And it's something that has stayed with me since I read it back in the summer. I, I really just can't stop thinking about it. It's so, so good. Well, I haven't read it yet. Um, and I was desperately trying to fi- find a spot in the calendar to, to invite him on the show. Um, and I think I've decided to free myself a little bit from always having people with a book out that week on the show so that I can catch up with things like this because it sounds brilliant. The whole, the name Ghost Daddy, I just find it so creepy. <laughs> it does sound really good, Emily. It's very, it's, and it just never went where I expected. And I really, I really, it's, if, if I could press one book into the hands of everyone who listens to this, it would be this one. Hmm. Sounds really good. Yeah. Have you ever seen a film called, uh, is it Jughead? Or where, where they have the hole in the ground in the woods that they they basically feed people to? <laughs> no. no. I have not, but the vibes are, are, are not dissimilar. Oh, Jugface. That's it. It's a film from 2013. Yeah, the, 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 the one-line synopsis is, pregnant with her brother's child, always a good start, a young girl Oof. tries to escape from her backwards community after learning that she is to be sacrificed to a creature that lives in a very deep pit. I mean, what part of that <laughs> do you not want to see? You know what I mean? Yeah. I love that kind of like backwards, weird Appalachian horror. So, so sign me up for Revelator, which is a great name as well. It sounds quite threatening as a title. Yep. Really perfectly captures the religious aspects of the story. I'm adding it to my TBR now. Right, I'm going to jump in. Um, it's an anthology, and it's When Things Get Dark. Stories inspired by Shirley Jackson, edited by Ellen Datlow. I had Ellen on the show a month or so back to talk about this and her other projects, but, but this is the one that really stands out for me. So I was astonished, first of all, that she pulled it off, because I think Shirley Jackson remains one of the most elusive authors in horror full stop. I think it's very difficult to articulate what a Shirley Jackson story is. You can feel what it is. You know it when you read it. It's really difficult to say on paper what what fits that bill, you know. And then on top of Mm -hmm. that, Ellen said that she wanted, she actively asked her contributors to avoid either directly engaging with Jackson's stories so no alternative hill house no other lottery and also from engaging with her biography so all all they were left with was a flavor of this very elusive storytelling style and it smashed it because unlike you Sadie I'm not always a massive fan of anthologies I often find that because they are so disparate and because they are so varied you kind of head into it knowing you're only going to be satisfied by probably half of it if you're lucky. And I, I find that a bit frustrating. I, I much prefer single author collections, but I read this on my holiday and it just just astonished me how good it is, how every story, it, the, the quality of, of just the consistency across them all and the variety, but the coherence of it. And I've talked at length numerous times about some of the stories, but there's a story by Josh Malaman, um, the name which escapes me actually, that's about a world in which math has been outlawed. And if you if you know what math is, if you can add up two, two plus two, or if you even understand the concept of what math is, then bad things will happen to you. And it's just brilliant. And then there's two stories at the end, Tiptoe by Laird Barron. 
and Skinder's Veil by Kelly Link, which I'm just going to say it. I often say some of, I'm just going to say it. They're the best short stories I've read in years. Tiptoe by Laird Barron is up there with the very best storytelling I've, I've ever encountered. And yeah, I just think that anthology is the most consistently brilliant amalgam of different voices I've read in this or pretty much any other year. Yeah, Neil, I read that on my holiday too. I was on a beach vacation. So I really just took my time going through every story. And Gemma Files' story, The Pair of Anguish, I think it's called, (laughs) uh, about the girls that form a friendship and they kind of dabble in some witchcraft and they kind of can relate to each other through their like social awkwardness and stuff was just gripping like mm-hmm. some of the most gripping storytelling I've read and then also I really loved Benjamin Percy's which was perfect for an Oceanside um, read of it because you know it had to do with this like kind of small town horror and some kind of weird folklore and it just the Kelly Link story you mentioned too was just so weird and wonderful. Mm. I really just loved the whole collection or the whole anthology, excuse me. I have not yet read it and I'm, I have it sitting on my shelf right now and I'm, I'm pulling it out to put on my bedside table. So I read it sooner. <laughs> Treat yourself. When you finish tiptoe, email me because I want to know what you think. It's that good. Got it. Yeah, it. It, it scared the life out of me. There's a final image in that story that is just the creepiest thing. And um, I, I described it and Kelly Link's story. And, and I, I've kind of fallen a bit in love with my own metaphor here, so I want to repeat it. But those stories feel like a jigsaw with three extra pieces. So you've you've finished the, the jigsaw puzzle. You can see the picture. It makes sense, but you've got these other pieces left over. So the meaning overspills. There is too much potential meaning, which is, Mm. for me, far more satisfying than not enough. I'd rather have ambiguity because of too much information than because of too little. And when you Mm -hmm. read Tiptoe in particular, you you can put that story together in numerous ways with the same sort of shape, but just different kind of salient points and yeah, I've never spoken to Laird. I've got to get him on the show, but I just want to I just want to kind of tell him what that story meant to me really. It it blew me away. I I just love him and I I, I actually just read The Croning recently for the first time, but I, I Occultation his short story collection was my introduction to him and I think he is just a, an undersung master of the short story. Yeah. Yeah. I've only read is it what oh, Christ what's it called? Um the one with men from Porlock. The beautiful thing that awaits us all. Yes, yeah. Um, I read that over a weekend camping in Canada, and it was one of those perfect, you know, book meets weekend meets location kind of situations that will live long in my memory. Anyway, so that was um, When Things Get Dark, edited by Ellen Datlow. But back to you, Sadie. What's book two? Book two for me is a really recent read. Um, I was able to review it for Mystery and Suspense, which I think is a great um, platform for this book because while it does have some very strong horror imagery um, and it is very disturbing and graphic in certain places, it's also very readable like a thriller where you just kind of like sink into it and 
go along for the ride. You get really invested in kind of the drama of the main characters. Um, it's called When the Reckoning Comes, and it's by LaTanya McQueen. Um, I had the privilege of being able to uh, moderate a horror panel where I got to talk to um, Zin E. Rocklin and LaTanya and um, Rachel Harrison. And um, it was so great to hear her talk about why she wrote the novel and what she was kind of hoping to get from it. Um, and she is amazing. Like she is an amazing, impressive woman. Um, she has a PhD. She's a professor of creative writing. She writes fiction and nonfiction. And I do think that this is her debut, even if it's not, but I do think it is. Um, it's definitely worth adding to your, your TBR if you like stories um, like Peter Jelly Clark's Ring Shout um, and, you know, Beloved by Toni Morrison, where it has this historical fiction um, flavor, but also just kind of has a lot of uh, relational drama going on between the main characters. It's the story of, like, it's a Southern Gothic uh, story. And it kind of transports the reader back um, in time for some of the events. Um, but it's also a current narrative. So there's, you know, these dueling POVs, these dueling narratives. Um, and the main character, Mira, is invited to go back to this tobacco plantation from in her hometown. And she's really kind of nervous to rekindle a friendship with some two old friends of hers. Um, the one that's getting married, who is having the wedding at a, at a plantation, which is just problematic for Mira anyway. And then an, another friend who, um, back in the day, she explored this plantation with this guy named Jesse and they see something like really disturbing, um, which ultimately ends up getting Jesse kind of implicated in a, in a murder, um, and then, you know, without like doing spoilery details or anything, it has also this like chorus of the enslaved who kind of tell their story through some flashbacks and just other kinds of narratives. There's just a lot of literary devices in here that help propel the story um, and keep it fresh and interesting the entire time. So I really, really enjoyed it. I could definitely see this becoming like a movie. I could see somebody like doing a screenplay off of this work. Um, and it's short, so it's a quick read. You could definitely like pick it up during Christmas time and, you know, do some holiday shopping and cooking and stuff and dive into this one. It'll definitely make you not want to go to any weddings anytime soon. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it it well, has some of the more upsetting imagery I, I, I read this year. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Definite trigger warnings for, you know, black trauma. Everything. And yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, there is really some graphic stuff um, that transpires, but it's also just like, I feel like she, LaTanya had a real purpose in helping the reader to make a good connection to Mira and Jesse and kind of travel through this narrative with them um, and their relationship. So it does have some buffer points. It's not, it's not as traumatic as like Beloved. What is though? Yeah. I've noticed a trend this year of people having weddings at problematic locations and bad things happening. Because there's when the reckoning comes 
there is nothing but blackened teeth, and there is <laughs> yes. Queen of Cicadas. All of them involve affluent white people taking over a sort of traumatic spot and and using it for their own ends, and then the shit hits the fan. So I I, I don't know quite what has triggered that in in people in authors' minds, but it's definitely a trend. Oh, we love consequences, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Take it away, Emily. So next up for me uh, is actually going to be Cackle by Rachel Harrison. And, uh, you know, Sadie, you just mentioned her. And I actually did a, an, a launch event for her um, for this book in early October. And I was a huge, huge, huge fan of her first book, The Return which really just scared the shit out of me. And it was a very particular sort of horror grounded in the experience of women and, and particularly sort of millennial women that in a way that I hadn't really come across before. And I found it, 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 I felt like that book saw me, you know, and cackle is a very different book, but one that I love equally and in a very different way. Cackle is much more sort of, I would call it cozy horror. Um, it's the story of a woman who, you know, she she turns 30. Her longtime boyfriend has just broken up with her. She can't really afford to stay in New York City anymore. So she takes a teaching job upstate. And she moves into this little town and, you know, she's, she, you know, finds it pretty charming, but she's, you know, kind of awkward and having a hard time meeting people, making friends until she meets this one woman. And everyone in town is weirdly deferential to this woman. And, you know, she can't really get a read on what's going on, but this, this woman immediately takes her under her wing and, and decides that they're going to be great friends. And this woman is, of course, a witch. And may or may not have the town sort of in her thrall, but functionally it is a book that you should pick up if you got to the end of Midsommar and went, good for her. <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of a wonderful little, I, I would call it a, a, you know, a sort of female empowerment book. Know that I'm rolling my eyes as I say that with a twist and it's a very dark thorny twist and there are some i would say that if you're if you're somebody with a low scare tolerance this is this is a great book for you there are a couple genuinely frightening moments including one uh involving a, a you know bed with a canopy that oh god i'm never going to be able to sleep in a bed with a canopy ever without thinking of not that i do that a lot but you know um it is really funny and really incisive, and I think that she is one of the best authors writing about the experience of, like, basically women in their 30s. I loved The Return. I loved it. It scared me, actually, which is it's quite... I mean, I talk a lot about being scared on this podcast. It's quite rare that a book unnerves me. The Return really bothered me. Um, so I was a little bit bewildered when I read the synopsis of, of Cack, because I thought, oh, I hope she hasn't move too far from writing horror but I'm, I'm glad to know there are things still in there that that kind of get to you um but yeah, oh, yeah. i really i've really seen in a swimming it. pool that's really distressing <laughs> i know that there are, there are spiders everywhere all over the cover as well i'm not good with spiders so that that bodes well oh, yeah. but it it sounds a little bit witches of eastwick sort of but but again without that tongue-in-cheek aspect right 
Okay. It's it is much more earnest and much more sort of grounded in how how lost the main character feels and how sort of unmoored, you know, she's having sort of a belated quarter life crisis. Um, and I just, oh, I just loved it. I reread it in advance of the, uh, the event we did. And, and, and again, she is someone who writes incredibly fast reads, but fast reads that stick with you in, 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 in a way that not all, you know, fast reads do, mm-hmm. but I reread it and I was like shocked by how much of it I had retained, you know, in the intervening six months. But it, it, a lot of the imagery there stuck with me in the same way as the return. I will definitely give it a go. Have you read it, Sadie? Yeah, I did actually uh, read it and had kind of a similar experience that Emily had in that I I did feel like it was cozy horror. I read it in October. Um, so I had like, you know, all the spooky vibes of the season. And um, it was just a fun, it's just a fun read. And I I really think like the relational part of it with the two women and I mean, the anxiety that, the main character feels forming a new relationship I could really relate to because I do feel like sometimes female relationships can be really intense. Um, and I kind of am more of an introvert. And so the, the way that the way that her friendship is just pursued by this other woman just gave me so much anxiety. So for me, it was just <laughs> like, Oh, this is too much. Um, so I had a, I had a fun time reading that book. Well, I know that Rachel listens to this podcast. So, hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> hi, Rachel. When the book comes out in paperback, we'll get you back on to talk all about it. Perfect. And she's she's got a werewolf book coming next fall. Oh, Christ. Rachel, slow down. <laughs> no, don't, Rachel, don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about me. Um, is it me next? Yeah, isn't it? It's me. Um, right. Okay. So... I'm going to mention a book that I guess you guys won't have heard of because I'm not sure it got a US release just yet. Could be wrong. I'll check. It's called The Spirit Engineer by AJ West. Have you heard of this? No. No, I haven't. Well, because of the, the weird time travel aspect of recording a podcast, obviously we're recording this at the very end of November to go live at the end of December. There is time between now and when this goes live. I'm hoping in that month of time to get the chance to speak to AJ about the spirit engineer. So you may have already heard the episode with him by the time you hear this episode. Then again, you may not, and this may make no sense. But um, it's, it's a book that at first feels like it's treading very familiar ground because it's set in the Edwardian decades pre-First World War, in the tumult of spiritualism around that time. So you get Conan Doyle shows his face. You get Harry Houdini shows his face. There's lots of seances in people's dining rooms. And when you read the synopsis, you think, I've read this many times, yeah? And then you read it, and it's such a nasty, black-hearted piece of work. Because it's about this guy who is an a kind of a professor in engineering who is the kind of arch rationalist and weird things have gone on in his personal life and in his house, but he puts it down to kind of nothing almost through various contrivances. He is commissioned to become an investigator into this supposed medium and her family 
who are kind of setting London alight. And he he applies himself to it with with a plum, and in the process becomes an ardent believer. So you get loads of cool in, information about the history of the time, the history of spiritualism, about the techniques that mediums use to kind of con their audiences. You get some quite pervy sexual detailing between the spirit engineer himself and the young medium, where it starts to take on this quite uneasy sexual component. And and in the early days of the podcast, I spoke to Kate Summerscale, who wrote a non-fiction book about this exact topic called The Haunting of Alma Fielding. And these two books work in perfect tandem, one as non-fiction, one as a fictionalization of real events. That's the plot. But what makes it so head and shoulders above all the other pieces of fiction that trammel in this in this world is that the central protagonist, the spirit engineer, a man called William Crawford, who did exist, is just the most odious piece of work. And you see <laughs> the book entirely through his perspective. And he's just a narcissistic, selfish, self-obsessed, self-pitying arsehole of a man (laughs) but not not in a way that distances you from from wanting to read the book and also weirdly not in the way that you want bad things to happen to him it's more just this compelling character study of a man who is just a shell of a human being who wants to be filled by some kind of belief whether it's belief in rationality in engineering or belief in the spirit realm uh, yeah, it's really, really viciously funny. It's got a lot to say about class in Britain. Um, and to go back to sort of comparison pieces, I suppose, what would I say? Imagine if you took, I don't know, what's the, what's something about mediums? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's basically like, it's like a book about mediums written by Evelyn War. <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go get myself a copy of this. It's called called the Spirit Engineer. It's great. It's, it's really, really fun. Is this the first time you've read this author, Neil? Or have you? I'm sorry if I missed that. You said you've read more of his. No, it's his first novel. Oh, okay. That sounds fantastic. I, yeah, it really does. Yeah, loved it. Made me laugh out loud and made me wince at how just gauche this man is. I love an unlikable protagonist. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I love flawed people and I don't really care for characters that seem overly put together, if that makes sense. Like, I just don't think any of us are. So it's really refreshing to read people that (laughs) you run into more often than not. Well, what I liked about it was it's quite rare, I think, that you get, you know, in quotation marks, an unlikable protagonist who is male. Because that seems to be a, a term that's only applied to female characters. Because <laughs> yep. male characters are challenging, or they are problematic, or they are, you know, tortured. They're anti-heroes. You know, like, yeah, they're, exactly. They're anti-heroes. And outside probably Patrick Bateman, and terrifyingly, even people want to be like him. But, you know, it's quite rare you get somebody who is authentically unlikable, who's male. So it was, it was quite, yeah, it was quite refreshing. That's a really good point. Hmm. So my third choice then, or my last choice, um, is Come With Me. And um, I <laughs> was so surprised by this book. I mean, I anticipated it. 
and we talked about how much we were anticipating it. Um, when I read the synopsis, I thought, um, this is going to be different. You know, this could be like a thriller that maybe wants to be horror, but is probably going to land somewhere squarely in, um, the thriller territory. But I was pleasantly surprised. I, I think that this has plenty of horror to entertain diehard horror fans, but I also think it's got that binge worthy page turning, quality of a thriller. So the story is basically this guy named Aaron. Um, he has this wife who I, she has this like little pet thing that she does where she invites him to come with her. And he oftentimes is too busy to indulge in just, you know, going off with her to run menial errands or go on a road trip or whatever. So he often rejects her little invites and on one invitation, this is not a spoiler because it is on the back of the book. Um, she tragically dies um, after her, her invite to come with her. And he's just sort of haunted by this scenario of rejecting her invitation. And then something happens to her where he doesn't get a chance to say goodbye. And as he's just grieving and going through the grieving process, um, he starts to uncover details about her life that lead him on a journey of picking up threads where she had left off, kind of investigating a series of murders of some young girls. Um, and she had been doing this like almost like a lifelong journey because it starts off like a, from a, a long time in her past. Um, and it's just kind of an unrelenting grip of curiosity that the reader has to just go and go and go and just more, more, more like at, as it gets uh, really close to him being almost overwhelmed by the whole mystery of what's happening and, and kind of all these feelings about how she had this secret life, but also just the importance of this work that she was doing. It's, it's extremely emotional. Mm -hmm. um, I found myself being very emotional and it might have a lot to do with um, the way that Ronald Malfi wrote this in like a second person narrative. I think I have that right. Where it's almost like Carolyn Kefna's you where she kind of addresses the reader in a sense, yeah. but he's talking to his wife. Um, so yeah. So the mystery, the intrigue, the wife haunting um, the characters. Like I, I loved the whole thing um and i highly recommend it it's something that you could possibly start reading and not be able to put down so i definitely recommend carving out a huge chunk of time to get into it you're not going <laughs> to want to put it down i loved it it would have been on my list if we'd done four because it's a beautiful book and it, it harks back to that thing i said about the return of earnest kind of big epic horror storytelling it's not epic in the sense of like a grand canvas like the stand but it's about big meaty weighty themes and and what i found most impressive about it was the fact that he made grief not boring because quite often in fiction grief is either boring or it's dispensed with i always think about bag of bones by king is is a good example lisa's story is a good example of where you can perpetuate grief without bogging down the plot but so many authors just kind of go, right, okay, dead woman as catalyzing moment. Now we'll crack on. We won't actually mention the fact that the guy's sad. Mm -hmm. 
he would just go and hurt a lot of people because this happened. But the actual emotional traction just dissipates. And in this, it doesn't. You can feel his love for his wife and his confusion about who his wife really is on like every page. It's it's lovely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was feeling. Um, and I just kind of was surprised by it because Ronald Malfi is a chameleon in the industry where all of his stories have a totally different voice. Like, I feel like this is completely different than Bone White. It's completely different than December Park. Like you, every time you pick up a Malfi book, you're going to get something different. The storytelling is very strong and you feel like you're in capable hands with Malfi, but it is going to be different. Unlike Stephen Graham Jones, where it does feel like the same storytelling voice and you come to recognize it and love it. Malfi can change um, that that storytelling voice for whatever subgenre yeah. he's working in at the moment. I would say if you liked the TV show True Detective, you'll love Come With Me. Shamefully, I, I have not read this yet, but I, I am a huge fan of horror-centric explorations of grief. The one that always comes to mind for me is The Fisherman by John Langan. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, oh. So this is this is absolutely going on my list. Yeah. It's got a great potentially supernatural evil in it as well called Gashead, who is who, who if they make a movie will be straight into the pantheon of monstrous horror greats. Ooh. But it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as oh, a demon did it. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, Emily, for your third pick. Oh, it's it's so hard. There are so many books I want to talk about, but I want to oh, I want my last pick to be The Deer Kings by Wendy Wagner, which is it you know, when you when you talk about these um, you know, epic storytelling about small towns, Neil, this one is is a perfect example. I am in the middle of reading that book right now. Perfect. No spoilers. <laughs> So no, it's not it's not your fault. Feel free to spoil, but yeah, if you cannot, that'd be great. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll be nice. Um, Wendy is uh, just obviously just such a lovely person, and I picked this up, and I was sort of like, okay, you know, this seems I'm not a hundred percent sure what to expect from it because the only other thing I'd I'd read by Wendy the book length was uh, an Oath of Dogs, and that was quite some time ago but this really nails the Stephen King you know Peter Straub you know everyone in this town knows each other and maybe that's not great um you know group of group of uh sort of misfit child friends who you know do something questionable together and then have to deal with the repercussions of it for the rest of their lives and her her writing is wonderful and the book itself is you know it it kind of lures you in and it's like okay it's this small town and it's the pacific northwest so the setting's a little bit different and then you get to the last 50 pages and everything just goes so far off the rails <laughs> like it's a really like it it just sort of veers into really brutal horror in a way that made me kind of sit up and take notice and I was just so satisfied by it at the end. I was just like, I just sat down and ate a really good meal that I didn't have to prepare myself. And I'm so happy right now. And I just want to bask in this feeling. It's that kind of book. 
Awesome. Oh, I love that, Emily. I will be, Neil, I will be so excited to hear what you think of it. Well, I'm speaking to Wendy tomorrow um, at the time of recording, and I have quite a bit of that book left to read. So my plan is to pretty much finish this conversation tonight, make a quick dinner, and then go to bed and read the last like 200 pages in one sitting. That's my plan. <laughs> have fun. <laughs> yeah, anything that's got any kind of kind of tinge of Stephen King's it, it is no surprise to literally anyone who's ever heard this show and that, that that's my thing. So yeah, I, I'm in hook, line and sinker. And I love her oh, prose yeah. style. I do too. She writes in very natural, unadorned, unpretentious prose. And every so often there's a really striking metaphor that just comes out of left field and makes you go, oh shit. And I, I like that. I did first discover Wendy, um, which I highly recommend listening to Pseudopod because they feature short fiction, short horror fiction in audio, and you can just kind of binge a short story in 30 minutes while you're washing dishes. And I listened to Wendy's story about these kids that live in a basement. Um, and it just unnerved me. <laughs> like, I think I messaged her on Twitter and was just like, Wendy, where have you been all my life? Um, <laughs> and so now I have the secret skin and the Dear Kings waiting for me on my shelf. And I am so eager to get into it. Um, just from reading short story that the pseudopod one, and I've read a sh another short story of hers as well. Um, and like Neil said, her voice is just, yeah, no, it's very unflinching, no pretenses. And the horror is thick. I, I, yeah. I love her, her storytelling. Oh, that thick with, with double C. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a comparison to be drawn between this book and The Brightlands by John Fram as sort of like, what if Friday Night Lights were, were a horror story? Yes. I don't know yet. I know that the main character is very upset that his son is playing football, but I don't know why. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave that. <laughs> Again, it's another weird one. I'll have spoken to Wendy, as far as the listeners are concerned, before this goes live. So... This is another strange one where this conversation will have already taken place. So I, uh, I look forward to, to working out what it's all about. Let's finish with, is it, is it my last pick now? Um, mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So for my, my final pick, easily my favorite book of the back half of 2021 is Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismore. Now, it's you two, when we did this in June, that gave me a complex about how I say the word boogeyman. You you both <laughs> laughed very hard at my when I said boogeyman. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've been practicing. Yeah. Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar is a weird proposition. It's have, I, have you two read it? Yeah, actually, we Ashley and I paired Chasing the Boogeyman and Come With Me for a Nightworms package. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, they're very similar in style, and I loved both of them. Have you read it, Emily? I have not yet read it. Not yet. Okay. So the premise is that there is the, the, the narrator and, and protagonist of the novel is Richard Chismar. And in some respects, it is the real Richard Chismar. So in, it, to, a, to a degree, you are reading an authentic biography of Rich's childhood, except there's a serial killer. Now, that 
isn't real. There was no serial killer. There was no boogeyman. So already you've got a kind of slightly meta fourth wall breaking thing, or it's kind of like a false biography, very much in the vein of something like Luna Park by Braston Ellis, where the line between what's real and fictional about this story is very malleable. But what makes it cooler is that there's all this paratext around it that kind of elides any easy distinction of truth and fiction. So when when you open it, there is a, a kind of foreword written by, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a relatively prestigious true crime writer who talks about finding the book you're reading back in the 80s when Rich, in quotation marks, first wrote it. And how amazing it is that since it was written in the 80s, they've now caught the killer. And consequently, Rich is reissuing this book with addendums and and, and retrospectives as, as a new thing. The entire thing is an illusion. It's just a construction that he's he's created. But there's this these layerings of fact and fiction. So that's clever as hell. And I love books that do things like that. But again, come back to this this thesis I have about the the, the, the meta and the experimental meeting the earnest, as I'm calling it, that where the meta meets the mega. It's just the most gorgeously nostalgic ode to late adolescence. That's interesting. These are not Goonies. These are not the Losers Club. Rich and his friends are 19, 20 on that weird cusp of manhood where you don't know who the frig you are or what you're supposed to be doing with yourself. <laughs> And it, it, everything in the book is infused. You, you can tell by the fact that I'm not really talking about plot, that that's not what got me. It's the tone of this book. And it's infused with this, this feeling of things slipping away and you know they're slipping away and you want to hold on to them, but you can't because age is taking you away from them. And that threshold of going to college and, and, and meeting a girl and moving out of your parents' house and leaving your friends behind and that slippage of adolescence into young manhood, that he just encapsulates it so beautifully. And there's one scene where he talks about standing outside his house in the snow and watching his mother and father and realising that one day they will get old and one day they'll be gone and one day his friends won't be there anymore and he will be a different person. And it's just beautifully kind of poignant. And when I asked him about it, he kind of filled up because he said that's that's what that did happen that moment that was real and that's how he felt. I don't know how much I love this book because me and Rich bonded over it, but we talked a lot about how we both love horror that is, as you said, Sadie, horror with heart, and we both talked about how much we we don't like horror that is just darkness for its own sake. And, and he gave me this phrase that I've used ever since to talk to articulate something I like, but I've never had the words for. He talks about golden-hued horror. And that's what mm. Chasing the Booger Man is. It's a horror story that is about the beauty of everything that isn't horror, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I just loved it. It's an utter distraction. Yeah, and that's that's also like one of the main reasons why coming-of-age horror is just one of my favorites like you said Neil with it being one of your you know favorite novels of all time I could just go back to that all the time because it's just so nostalgic but also relatable um and yeah Chasing the Boogeyman definitely had that kind of small town 
relatable fear factor of just knowing that like something bigger than yourself is happening and everyone's just kind of helpless to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that Chismar inserts himself into this novel is really genius. Like it could have gone wrong. And I really think he pulled it off. So it sounds like a bit of a Jeffrey Ford thing because he tends to write stories that are pseudo autobiographical. Um, Yeah. I've only read one Jeffrey Ford novel and I can't remember what it's called. It was a novella, but I liked it a lot. But if you're saying that's what he's like, I'm going to read more of him because I, I loved it. It also had that thing about young manhood. It had something in it that reminded me of King's Revival. Yeah. Honestly, Emily, you should read it. It's it's a really, really quick read. It's quite short, punchy chapters. You'll hammer through it in no time, but it, it will move you, I think. Oh, you've both completely sold me on it. And, and coming-of-age horror is not always what I reach for, which was sort of why I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked The Dear Kings. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm sort of I'm delving a little bit more into it, and you know I think in you know those sort of weird ingrained prejudices you have about certain types of fiction. For me, I was like, oh, but like you know, you know the shadow of it was sort of falling over the rest of that subgenre for me, and now I'm like, all right, Emily, you know, shake that off. You're better than <laughs> that. <laughs> I know what you mean though, because I I love, and I know you do too, Sadie. I, I love coming of age horror, but. It kind of feels like a book that would otherwise be quite good. Often I respond to less positively because it's not it and it's not a boy's life and it's not summer of night. And it feels like the bar has been set so high by those quintessential coming age horror novels that other books, which are perfectly good, kind of just I dismiss them more than I would another book, if you know what I mean. And that's probably not fair. Mm-hmm. But Chasing the Boogeyman straight in straight in at that tier for me it's up there with them i just loved it wonderful so can we just go through because we, we, we've talked for a while there and in case people forget can we starting with you sadie can we just rehash the three books we talked about in the author sure i chose um my heart is a chainsaw by stephen graham jones i chose when the reckoning comes by latonya mcqueen and um come with me by ronald malfi and for me, it was Revelator by Daryl Gregory, Cackle by Rachel Harrison, and The Deer Kings by Wendy Wagner. My three were, God, I've forgotten. When Things Get Dark, stories inspired by Shirley Jackson, edited by Ellen Datlow, The Spirit Engineer by A.J. West, and Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. We've talked for a while Obviously, there's a lot more books than just three. So I thought, what would be fun to do to test your book-selling prowess <laughs> is I'm going to give mm-hmm. you you both two minutes to talk about any other books that you've loved in the last six months that you want to mention. I will then put them in the show notes so people can dig them out. You know, you don't have to say it in a way that people have to re- remember it. I'll deal with that. But you've got two minutes each to tell me about other things that almost made your list. Sound good? You got it. Yeah. Okay, who wants to go first? Emily does. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. Tell me when to start, Neil. Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one, go. 
All right. A Touch of Jen by Beth Morgan. This is a book that wasn't really billed as horror. It's sort of a contemporary millennial story of, uh, you know, a relationship that isn't going well on either side that takes such an unbelievable turn into cosmic horror at the end that I was left kind of stunned. And it's funny and weird. And it's sort of like if if you, the Netflix show, the Caroline Kepnes books, met, uh, you know, Lovecraft. Uh, aside from that, we've got Flowers for the Sea by Zen Rocklin, uh, another sort of, you know, loved Lovecraft or like cosmic-ish horror done through the lens of conflicted feelings about motherhood, let's say that. And it's a novella. And if you loved Nothing But Blackened Teeth by Cass Caw, you absolutely need to pick up Flowers for the Sea next. Aside from that, let's see, we've got, ooh, Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. This is another sort of, you know, borderline horror, uh, conflicted motherhood book about a woman who's sort of academic career has been frustrated by having to stay at home with her her young child who starts to become convinced that at night she is turning into a dog. Uh, and it is fascinating and weird and not scary, but definitely disturbing. Let's see. We've got, I mean, obviously all of the Nightfire titles. I didn't feel like I should pick any of those for my big three because, you know, I, I work for them. But there's The Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward. There's Certain Dark Things by Sylvia Marina Garcia. There's Nothing But Black and Teeth by Cass Caw. Uh, we've got Slewfoot by Brom. Uh, oh, and I also need to mention The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling, which is just like gothic in a way that you've never really read before. Like if you loved Crimson Peak, you gotta go pick up Jane Lawrence. It is, Caitlin is just a star and it's a, an interesting blend of historical gothic romance. Um, and Stopping you there. Think, Stopping you ah, there. You, you have, yeah. I gave you 20 seconds more because I like Caitlin a great deal and she was a great guest. <laughs> I thought she deserved to get her butt talking about. So yeah. Perfect. Okay. Right. Sadie, over to you. Okay. I'm going to count you in. Five, four, three, two, one, go. So I do want to talk about a few releases that happened in 2021 that I think readers would do well to um, pick up. And the first one would be Queen of the Cicadas by V. Castro. Um, just like Neil mentioned, it's another a story about white people having a wedding at a destination that they shouldn't and um, bad things happen. And it kind of reminds me like Candyman or La, La Llorona where there's just sort of like, a, you know, this folk legend thing happening. Um, and I just really don't want to be spoilery about it. It's a fast read. Just pick it up. It, it's a good one. Also, um, on that beach trip where I read uh, the Shirley Jackson anthology, I also read Rovers because my dad um, brought that. And that is by ooh, Richard Lang. And it's a vampire story. And it's, I don't know, it doesn't really reinvent the wheel with vampires, but it is something that's very compelling. And I always give props to books, even if I don't think they brought anything super new to the table, if they kept my attention the whole time and I blew through it, um, then there's something there that needs to be discussed and shared. Um, so I, I loved the brother relationship in this book. There's these 
this one that is kind of keeping like stewardship over his younger brother who has some mental handicap. Um, and they're, they're both vampires um, and they're being hunted by another group of vampires. And, and I, I thought it was really enjoyable. Um, also, I want to talk about the turnout by Megan Abbott. This is also like a sibling relationship that's just destructive. <laughs> um, but it's about these two sisters, these women who own um, a ballet school and one of them, they're very weird. Like these women are very weird. And one of them falls in love with, or just kind of has a relationship with, I don't want to say love, but has a relationship with a contractor that comes to do work at the school. And what happens after she starts having this relationship with this contractor is completely off the rails. Like, I could not read that book fast enough. I was a junkie for it. Like if I wasn't reading it, I was thinking about reading it. So definitely pick that up. Not necessarily horror, it's horror achievement. Okay. Stopping you there. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'll put all of those in the show notes. People can check them out. I haven't heard of some of those books myself. I want to read The Rover. Uh, sorry, is it The Rover or Rovers? Rovers. Rovers. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to kind of give myself the same indulgence and I will sit to two minutes. You can trust me on this one. Okay. So here we go. Right. First of all, Chuck, when is the book of accidents? We've talked about it already. It's a big epic piece of storytelling in the Stephen King, weirdly slightly more Clive Barker oddness mode. It feels like something straight from the eighties, totally retro. Nothing more to say about it. I just loved it. Um, Ghoul and the Cape, however, is very different. That's Josh Malaman's 700-page monolith, which is on the surface about two drunks fleeing a literal sentient star that is eating America. That's how crazy this is. But beneath that, it's a book that is entirely about sustaining your own sense of awe and wonder in the world. And over the last two years, the shrinking of horizons and the narrowing of perspectives and all the shit that's gone down, it, it feels like a book that is much needed as a tonic to the shrinking worldview of humanity. Um, Catherine Valente's Company with Apples, as I mentioned, is a rapier sharp little novella. It's got a really, really clean through line. Um, as somebody who is a who has a problematic relationship with religion, it really worked for me. Uh, and lastly, I'm going to say Brian Evanson's The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, which is the short story anthology we need for these climate crisis days. It, it's a true, horrific sideshow of future ecological collapse. There we go. I got that in, I think that, that was a minute and 58 seconds. So I'm quite yeah, pleased nicely with myself. Done. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I want to talk about books we're excited for next year. Now, Emily, you're more prepared for this than any of us because you know every book that's coming out next year. It's all in your list. <laughs> so I'm going to make it a bit less easy. I'm going to say, tell me what the one book is that you're really looking forward to at the start, in the first few months of 2022. Because hopefully we'll get back together again next early summer we could do all of this again. So there's no point talking about loads of it. Just give me one book that you cannot wait to get in your hands at the start of next year. I came in with a list of like six books and uh, I want to say like four of them are summer or onward. 
does it have to be something I haven't read yet? <laughs> not at all. No, no, no. Tell me what you want. Okay. It's Manhunt. It's absolutely Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. It is an unbelievably good book. Coming from Nightfire in February, it is the story of uh, a group of trans women and trans men who have survived a sort of, you know, gender-based apocalypse a la Why the Last Man and are you know, hunting the sort of monstrous creatures that used to be, you know, cis men for, you know, sustenance and survival, and also trying to evade a murderous group of TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminist feminists who uh, are bent on eradicating them. And it is like a shot of adrenaline straight to the dome. And Gretchen is a tremendous writer it's funny and it's gruesome and it carries, you know, every trigger warning you can imagine. And it is absolutely brutal. And I can't wait to just press it into the hands of everyone I pass on the street for the next six months. And if I'm right, that's out in February 22nd, I think. Yes, indeed. two twenty-two twenty-two. Yeah, that is my only slot in the entirety of the spring that I've still got free. So I could uh, I could potentially reach out to Gretchen and see if they want if they want to talk to me about it. Hell yeah. Yeah, it does it does sound like a very provocative read. What about you, Sadie? What's top of your list for twenty two? Well, I read Manhunt, so I'm just gonna confirm everything Emily said. Um, definitely on board with <laughs> her recommendation. Um, but I'm gonna cheat and recommend something that I've already read. And it comes out in January, mid-January, and go with Such a Pretty Smile by Christy Demeester. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm halfway through it. I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea. And it's two narratives. It's a daughter and a mother. Some crazy shit is happening on the mother's narrative you know, in her timeline. And then some crazy shit is happening with the daughter as well. And there's lots of femininity, lots of uh, themes about womanhood and motherhood and being a daughter and being an adolescent girl, like so much here. And Christy Demeester is just like that for me. Like everything I've ever read by her um, really strikes a chord. And so that's mine. Well, Christy will be my first guest in 22. It's already kind of set up, so I'm looking forward. To, I've got the book. I just need to find time to read it net between now and then. But yeah, I am looking forward to that one. Oh, yeah, me. I need to give one, don't I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. Um, right, so so my... This is easy for me. There's, there's, like, there's one book that's coming out in January that I just cannot wait to read. And it's called All the White Spaces by mm. Ali Wilkes. Which so I'm I'm a sucker for what would you call it kind of adventure horror survival horror explorer horror I don't know but basically I like the terror by Dan Simmons and I like yes. the hunger by Alma Katz so you know like everyone else I haven't read it yet so I'm not in the same position as you guys but all the white spaces is about a a trans man who embarks on a polar expedition and typically things go wrong the group ends up stranded in i can't remember i cannot even remember if it's the arctic or the antarctic but it's somewhere fucking cold anyway (laughs) and they end up stranded there and there is a supernatural presence which does not wish them well so it sounds a lot like the terror 
but I've heard nothing but great things about it. Um, I've been speaking to Ali quite a bit about some mutual interests we have, largely like unexplained mysteries and the phenomenon of survival cannibalism. Um, we're both into that in a big way, so I think we are quite simpatico on uh, on on what we were interested in. And and it's a big, thick, like chunk of a book. It's like six hundred pages, and it just looks like the best book to sit down with between Christmas and New Year and just get lost in. And that is out. It's out in January in the US and March in the UK, or vice versa. One of the two. <laughs> but yeah, all the white spaces, I, I really can't wait to read it. I am really excited for that one too. I haven't read it yet either, but it, it really piqued my interest as soon as I started doing research for the 2022 list. I'm similarly a big fan of the terror. And uh, by the way, if you like uh, survival cannibalism stories, you gotta be watching Yellow Jackets. Oh, I, I wanna watch that. Watch Yellow Jackets. I haven't heard of that. Oh my god. Okay, so it's on Showtime. Uh, I've been watching it via Hulu. Not sure about UK availability. Apologies, Neil, but. It is a TV series about a girls soccer team that's going to like the national championships in the 90s and they crash in the Canadian Rockies and the surviving girls are not rescued for 18 months. And (laughs) over that time, they devolve into basically warring cannibal clans and it, oh. it it cuts in between the you know the 1990s storyline and the present day storyline where some of the you know surviving girls now adults are trying to go about their lives and they have basically they had all made a pact being like we can never tell anybody what we did i need to watch this so good it's i'm i'm it's only there're only 3 episodes of aired so far and it is I had that sort of electric feeling of like, oh, I'm watching something incredible as I was watching the pilot. Well, I've just looked and it debuts on UK TV on December 2nd. So I will be watching that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that does. Well, since you've opened this can of worms, we can talk about... So you said Yellow Jackets. Have you got a particular TV show, Sadie? Um that, that has kind of really struck you this last six months? Oh, yeah. So um, my husband and I were really into two shows at the same time. So we were kind of going back and forth between Nine Perfect Strangers and also White Lotus. Um, both of them kind of remind me of each other as well. Like um, one is just, a bu- it's based on a story too. So um, it's just a bunch of strangers like stranded on, well, not stranded, but they're, they've chosen to go to this like wellness clinic. Um, and then they end up not really wanting to be there at different times for different reasons, but they're sort of trapped there. Um, and they're partaking in experimental uh, drug usage to handle um, kind of big issues in their lives. And it stars Nicole Kidman and Melissa McCarthy is in it. It's just like a really good cast of actors. Um, and it just highlights different things that like a, a family is there, a whole family trying to grieve the loss of, of a loved one. Um, and also White Lotus was also taking place in like a resort kind of setting with different families and following different POVs, but totally different in the vibe. I loved White Lotus. So good. 
Yeah, me too. It made me so uncomfortable. Yeah, where you're just so you're just screaming at the screen some of the time. Um, really, really addicting. Um, and also, I loved um, Reservation Dogs, which is also on Hulu. Um, and that's just a story of so- a coming of age story, Neil, that you would really like. And it's okay. some kids who are growing up on a reservation and they just kind of go through life. Um, They're saving up some money so they can get off the res. Um, And there's other kids there that they kind of have like these warring street cred type of battles with. It's really funny and also super heartwarming. Okay. That sounds my kind of thing. It, I loved it. Yeah. It's almost an anthology series in that like, a lot of there's one sort of central through line with this group of kids, but some episodes yeah. will fix, you know, lo, will sort of fix the narrative on like a peripheral character. Mm-hmm. And there is a like a little bit of a supernatural element woven in not in like a not in like a white people supernatural way, but in a, you know, this is sort of, you know, as I understand it, more of the experience of, of uh, Indian and native communities where this is just sort of a fact of life. And it's really well made. And the act, the acting is great. The actress who plays um, Elora Dannon, who's one of the sort of main characters is really like, I think she's going to have like quite the career. She's really talented. Yeah. I haven't watched much TV because, well, I read all the time and I don't have much time. Woe is me. But I, I've been watching the X-Files from the start which has taken up a lot of my time. So I haven't seen much new stuff apart from the one show to rule them all, Midnight Mass. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I went into it not expecting much because I kind of liked Haunting of Hill House. I thought it was all right, but I found it a little bit self-indulgent, a little bit drawn out. And I love the subtitle so much that how dare you piss about with it, you know? Really didn't like Haunting of Bly Manor at all and then all i kept hearing was this monologue thing monologue I thought, oh do i really want to watch this you're like i've already got a bit annoyed about the slow pace of netflix tv because they they have so much kind of adaptability with their own episode lengths and the scheduling they can do what they want i often think it leads itself to be quite drawn out unnecessarily so i was like do i need to see this and i put it on and i was just so hooked oh my god it's like it's the best stephen king story that stephen king didn't write and I just, Katie Siegel is amazing in it. The guy, I can't remember his name, who plays Riley, who was in Friday Night Lights, is amazing in it. The, the Monsignor who comes in, I mean, that, that performance deserves all the awards. And it's so slow burn. And you're like, well, what is going on here? And then the last two episodes are like the most high octane, nerve wracking horror in ages. I just thought it was brilliant. And I, and I loved that somebody, without kind of spoiling this, I loved that somebody finally looked at the kind of the Catholic rite of transubstantiation and realized the ready-made horror mm, lore that mm-hmm. is already there. Salem's Lot plays at it, but this takes it full on. And I'm like, oh, that is good. That is such a good show. See, I haven't watched it because... I I was very skeptical of Hill House because I, I am also so invested in the source material. And I was like, this isn't an adaptation. This is just something else that borrowed the title. And I watched the first couple episodes and it was actually, it, it hit the few sort of horror filmmaking tricks that really make me tap out fast. 
And so I just never continued with it. And I never tried with Bly Manor. But I've heard so much good about Midnight Mass. And I really do like horror about religion. It is it is kind of my favorite way to consume any culture about religion uh, that I, I do think I need to give it a shot. I just think it's great. Did you see it, Sadie? Yeah, and I'm a huge Mike Flanagan film person. So I watched all the shows and loved them all. You know, I'm just a junkie for whatever he does. And Midnight Mass was probably my favorite of the three. um, Just because I have a lot of repressed (laughs) spiritual stuff um, that really came out while we were watching this, my husband and I. And just it led to some really rich conversations for us. It's huge talking points. Um, and just trying to figure out like what was going on and just having those moments of discovery. And yeah, it was everything for us. That conversation about what happens when we die is one of the the best scenes of TV of the year, I think. Anyway, I think we've covered the entire spectrum of horror there for for the last six months. I think we've done pretty well in, in two hours. So Normally, I finish up with a set two questions. Going to shake it up this time and ask you what your resolution is for your horror life in 2022. Well, for me, I I had a rough reading year, I got to say. You know, 2020, a lot of people talked about how, you know, the, the sort of first year of the pandemic affected their reading. And for me, I did okay in 2020. This year, I have read like at at least twenty five to thirty percent fewer books than I do most years, and I don't know why. Uh, so I need to I need to really get myself back on track with that. And beyond that, I am resolving to just actively seek out more horror by marginalized creators, authors of color, trans authors. Because, you know, there's more of it out there than it ever has been. And, you know, like, I feel at this point, like, I kind of know the stories that, like, you know, white cis men and white cis women have to tell in the horror space. That's not to say that I've, you know, read all of them or, you know, that they can't still surprise me. But I want to know what else is out there. I want to know what Mm -hmm. other people are frightened by. I want to know what you know, other people are using horror to express about their own lives. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's what I'm trying to do as well. And it's it's very re- rewarding to see different perspectives and different laws and different folklores and different legends entering the horror space is a great thing. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sadie? Um, I really just would like to carve out more time to read for myself. I find that during the day I get really caught up in social media and promoting and writing my reviews. And I don't allow myself enough time to sit and read because it feels like I'm not being productive or I'm not quote unquote doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll save my reading for nighttime when I get into bed. And I just am so tired by the end of the day that I really don't get that much done. Um, So I would really like to just carve out some daytime and consider it work, you know, not consider it a leisure activity, but something that I am actually doing for my job, which is writing reviews and curating a horror fiction package um, for our subscribers. So I need to make sure that I put enough time into the day to do that. 
So that's my goal is to just read more. That, that speaks to me because I am trying to balance this podcast against like doing freelance work. And, and sometimes I find myself having to turn down freelance work just to get a book finished before I interview someone. And I just feel terrible about that because my wife's at work, you know, it's about saying, oh, no, no, I'm trying to build something here. It, it is work. It's just maybe not remunerative work at this moment, you know. Um, so I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. Mine is quite simply just to ensure this podcast stays good. <laughs> I, I listen to so many podcasts where they begin to bloat, where they become overly self-indulgent, where they all, the, the host falls in love with their own voice rather than the guest voice. Um, I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to lose traction. I don't want the essence of what I'm doing to get lost in the attempt to make it financially viable. I need to preserve what has made this podcast a minor success amongst people who like it. And, and not kind of lose the wood for the trees, if that makes sense. So, yeah, that's my ambition and, and resolution. So keep looking after you guys, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a killer job so far. Well, thank you very much. Well, listen, by the time people hear this, we'll, Christmas will have come and gone. Um, I hope that you guys have had a nice Christmas, you two listeners. But saying it to you now in the real space, I hope you have a nice Christmas. And, and a nice, a nice holiday from, from whatever your real life is. <laughs> yeah, all of you, both of you. Yes, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you ever so much for taking the time once again to look back over the year. And uh, Emily, Sadie, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Cabinet meeting adjourned. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone still here? Good. That was Mammoth. Told you we covered the whole gamut there, didn't we? Nine books picked, many more mentioned, and a nice little capsule collection to start your new year off in style. Every book we talked about is in the show notes, and if that book and that author have been on the show previously, then there's a little number next to their name to tell you which episode you can find them in. I hereby consider my work done. Actually, no I don't. The year is not quite finished. I will still be releasing my own personal top 10 of 21 in the next few days. Remember, this episode only went back as far as July, so there's a whole raft of books from earlier in the year to consider. And I've been thinking about that list now for a good few weeks, musing on my dog walks. I still don't know exactly which books will make it or how they'll rank, and you guys will probably find out just after I do. All we know so far is that horror has been incredible this year, which is quite fitting considering the last 12 months. It was nice to see the year out by getting back together with Emily and Sadie, because between the two of them they have this inexhaustible knowledge of horror in its current up-to-the-minute form. My expertise, if I can call it that, and I do, it tends to have some lag. I always seem to be catching up with what other people already know is great. For example, see my recent conversion to Stephen Graham Jones. So, having Emily and Sadie on hand to drag me into the present is incredibly useful, and plus, they're just good people. You can find them both online at Emily Hughes and at Mother Horror, and I would recommend doing so if you aren't already. And let's face it, if you follow me, you almost certainly follow them already anyway. And on oh, that mega list that Emily puts together and that I always rhapsodise, I've put that in the show notes too.
Check out what's coming up and let me know if there's anyone you would love me to invite on the show. 2022 is already shaping up to be incredible, both in terms of talking scared and horror in general. I'll be featuring a mixture of big names and new voices, previous guests like Paul Tremblay and T. Kingfisher, and a whole slew of new exciting people to speak to. And of course, no doubt, we'll have Malaman back for his quarterly update. He's probably written another three novels since I last spoke to him. But yeah, do consult Emily's list. Tell me who I should add to the roster. I'm always open to suggestions. You can reach me to do that or for any other reason on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. The name is the same. It's at TalkScaredPod. Or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod. And you can support the show, if you wish, via Patreon. To do that, you just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. It's a few dollars a month for a variety of bonus episodes, access to the digital book club and other exciting things to come. I'm hoping to take this show to the next level in 2022 and every single bit of support that you can give is significant in making that happen. Speaking of 2022, it's imminent and God knows what it's going to bring. I'm actually recording this a few days before Christmas, so the situation could have changed already. The future has never been more uncertain. But I know that if we pull together around something we love and enjoy, then that has to help. This is just a little podcast that I create in my spare time, but I know it brings some of you a little joy. And all of your comments and your emails and the time you take to get in touch, that gives me a lift like you wouldn't believe. So let's keep it going. Let's all try and make the new year better for the people we love in whatever small way we can. I'll leave that there before this starts to sound like a cult because such sentimentality should not be encouraged from someone who pretends to dabble in the dark and probably just overcome with festive cheer and Baileys. I'll be back absurdly soon with my best of lists, but until then, I'm going to end with a quote from our collective horror daddy, Stephen King. I think it sums up 2021 better than I ever could. And it goes like this. The place where you made your stand never mattered. Only that you were there and still on your feet. Happy New Year, guys. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>